broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Very good morning, guys, in the studio and also to our listeners. Now, uh, if you could actually see these boys on camera, you'd say that they're looking a little bit different. Lots of haircuts seems to have happened. Brett, have you had your haircut? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, just regressing. My hair's gradually dying <laughs> off. No. Is that what it is? I couldn't tell. <laughs> but everyone's no, definitely had a shaven at the moment and, and uh, lots, lots less weight on the hair. Yeah, yeah. Finally got it done. I think it had been the best part of eight months. So it was probably as long as I can recall in the last 10 or 20 years. So it was time. Right. And uh, Louis, yours looks like you've had quite a quite a chop there as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot sharper uh, and a lot less weight. Yeah. Uh, Joel was saying that he was looking a little bit like, uh, what's the main character from uh, uh, Wall Street? Me, oh, um, Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko was quite long at one point. Uh, doing a bit of a Gordon Gecko, but uh, but now now I'm just pulling my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Collingwood. I don't know what you're doing in the draft period, but yeah, didn't take long to get back on the football. What is trade, going on? Trade period, sorry, trade period. Well, because it's so raw and fresh, it was the worst trade period I've ever seen from a club. Yeah, <laughs> tell you what, talk about puking, puking. That's what we did. Yep. Oh, well, there's always next year. Let's hope so. <laughs> We've sold next year. Yeah. Are you sold next year, have you? Are you going to win? Because that's always yeah, what Colin given away our good players and, and got nothing back, so next year's not looking that great by comparison, oh, but we'll okay. see. Nah. See, I'm not that good with the football. I, I do know more Collingwood football footballers, though, than um, any other team because of Joel, but I'm, I'm not that au okay with the football, so. It's understandable. Yeah. All right, guys, well, we might kick into our first topic for today. And, Joel, you're just going to give us a bit of a general market update on what's been going on in the world. Lots been happening, Steph. Lots has been happening. Um, We have uh, got through our, well, what are we, about a week and a half now uh, after the US presidential election was actually run and held. And we believe it's won, but we still don't know for sure because there's still a number of uh, court challenges that are ongoing. Uh, and uh, we, we still don't have a formally declared president, albeit uh, uh, many of the news uh, are now basically uh, assuming that uh, President uh, Joe Biden-elect uh, has, won the, uh, has won the race. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, it pretty much looks like he, yeah, it's it's going to be very, very, very difficult to see um, uh, anything sort of change here. So I think it's fair to say that we can assume that Joe Biden will be president after the 20th of January um, when he would be officially sworn in. I think it's the 20th, 21st, something around that date anyway. Uh, but, but outside of uh, a Biden uh, presidential election win, uh, we do know that uh, the Republicans have won the Senate. Um, and so, as we mentioned last week, it looks like more of the, uh, I guess, more left-leaning policies around um, around the Green New Deal and, and tighter regulation and increased taxes will probably find it very difficult to find their way uh, being passed, at least for the first two years of his presidency until the midterm elections. Um, and uh, and under that environment, stocks have generally uh, received the uh, the result uh, favourably because it looks like we're going to get a Democrat stimulus bill that will probably be introduced and passed sometime in the next several months, uh, and it's uh, going to be of a quite sizable uh, sum. The Democrats were pushing for about two trillion dollars in in stimulus prior to the presidential election being uh, held. Uh, that was held up as a result of political gameplay leading into the election. Uh, but that looks like it's uh, back on the cards and probably will get through. Um, uh, so, th- And so the, the financial markets, in terms of the macroeconomic backdrop, we have all-time low interest rates. We have huge amounts of fiscal stimulus being pumped into the system. 
we have quantitative easing that uh, that has uh, commenced and, and is still ongoing in the United States. We've actually had uh, quantitative easing in Australia now uh, has, has got underway for the first time in our history. Um, central banks uh, all around the world are essentially leaving interest rates at, at, uh, at all-time lows. Uh, most of the developed um, world is doing some form of quantitative easing. There is huge amounts of uh, fiscal stimulus that uh, is still being pumped into the economy, into the global economy, into many uh, economies around the world. So from an economic backdrop perspective, um, you know, we've got some fairly solid pillars for um, financial market performance and stock market performance moving forward, albeit, you know, as we always say, it's not going to be a straight line up. Uh, we're going to have uh, swings and roundabouts and and uh, just this week we had the Pfizer vaccine announcement where they've announced that uh, 90% um, effectiveness in in trials of more than tens of thousands of people who were were provided this uh, this uh, test drug uh, or test vaccine. So um, that's looking quite positive, and the financial markets bounced very strongly on news of that re that result. But I will will say. <clears throat> It wasn't broad-based. It was a very narrow rally. Uh, it was a rally that took place in a lot of sectors that had been hit hardest by the COVID uh, shutdown. So um, we saw big rallies in airlines, energy. Um, we saw big rallies in uh, travel companies. So think of your, your uh, cruise liners like Carnival Cruises and these types of uh, operators that have basically been flatlined hotels, uh, your big hotel brands like your Marriott's and your, your Hilton hotels, um, they all uh, they all performed quite well. Will that continue to last, do you think, or is it just an initial bit of a shock to the market and people have started to invest in, in those kinds of stocks? Well, it was, a, it was a very strong rally for the first couple of days on the announcement of the Pfizer vaccine. However, it, it seems to have abated in the last day or so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what we did see, though, was those stocks that have done the best over the past uh, seven or eight months uh, while this uh, COVID situation has been going on, and that's a lot of the work from home plays, a lot of the healthcare, biotechnology, pharmaceutical companies, uh, a lot of the um, uh, software as a service businesses that, that benefit from the work from home and, and e-commerce businesses, a lot of those got hit and got hit quite hard, yep. uh, albeit in the last day or two. That <laughs> seems to have reversed a little bit. So, look, in the last uh, in the last sort of four days or so since the Pfizer announcement, um, the S&P 500, which has a lot more of those old world industries, more... Um, you know, broader based, economically tied into uh, companies that certainly outperformed the Nasdaq. Uh, but look, we've we've been through this before, and, and in interestingly, uh, back in the 2016 election, everyone was expecting that a Donald Trump presidential election victory would have brought the stock market down. And and on the day of the election announcement, um, it the 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 U.S. stock market sold off, but only to reverse very late in trade to then commence what was one of the most impressive years that we've seen over the past decade uh, in 2017. But I will say that on the back of that announcement uh, that President Trump back in 2016 won, we saw a major rotation again out of the same sorts of stocks that we're seeing a rotation out of today, and we saw a rotation into pretty much the same sorts of stocks that we saw the rotation go into uh, as a result of this Pfizer vaccine announcement. Yeah. And, and you can clearly see that the market is, is now, uh, in, more, in more recent years, the market is certainly heading down a, a more bifurcated pathway where you've got these old world industries versus new world industries. And, um, and, and when something happens that uh, is positive for the broader economy, older world industries tend to perform well. Uh, but when the economy is heading into more uncertain times, at least in the short term, the new world industries um, tend to perform better. Right. So, and we and we've seen this a few times, to be honest with you, over the last four or five years. And I think it's just a result of the fact that uh, the economy is changing, mm. and uh, more and more technology and high growth, you know, uh, more more new world type businesses are becoming much more representative. On the stock market these days, and uh, and and that's representative of what's happening in the broader global economy with uh, these new industries uh, 
popping up and, and, and we're seeing this happen a lot more. Um, what do you do with your strategy when you see moves like this? Uh, well, we stick to our we stick to our game plan. So we're we're investing for growth. We're looking for companies that have really strong, solid, uh, and visible uh, revenue growth streams. And so we tend to play a lot more in those uh, new world industry type businesses. Yep. Um, uh, and we tend to stay away from the more cyclically uh, involved businesses. So you know the ones that tend to perform well when the market does, when the economy is doing well, and mm-hmm. perform poorly when the market's performing poorly. Um, but but interestingly, in the old days, or in the old days, years gone by, what you would see is uh, a rotation into cyclical stocks, into defensive stocks. But we're not seeing that these days. So cyclical stocks were your more, you know, resources, financial services, um, com- you know, commodities, materials, all of these sorts of businesses that would do well when everyone's building and, and spending and the economy's doing well. And then when people would get defensive, they would go into industries like utilities yep. and uh, healthcare and, and, and these types of businesses that tend to have, um, I guess, less um, cyclical uh, revenue streams. Yep. But technology in some respects and, and many of these, you know, recurring revenue businesses like technology companies, they've, they've somewhat become quasi-defensive businesses in or at least quasi-uncertain time uh, stocks uh, and they tend to be performing uh, much better in um, in, in more uncertain times than uh, than perhaps what they would have in, in years gone past. And that's a, that's largely the result of huge changes that they've made in their business models, where previously these sorts of businesses back in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, they were selling uh, lots of licenses. So every time there was a new upgrade, you used to have to sell a brand new license. But these days, they're selling subscription-based revenue models, and that gives them a lot more visibility and certainty of what, uh, around what they're going to earn in the future. So is it so that business that, model that yeah. makes them more secure and, and more safe when when the rest of the economy is going into a recession or something like it? Absolutely. Or is or, or do their share price hold up because um, th- there's so many years of future growth that is expected at the share price and a year's worth of um, less performance isn't really going to impact that sort of 10-year, 20-year future growth trajectory? Uh, yeah, good question, Louis. Look, it's. It, I would say that it's certainly got to do a lot with the change in business model that a lot of these technology businesses have have taken on board. Um, when, when you were let's let's take Microsoft for instance. Back in the '90s and the early 2000s, whenever they re- launched, you know, Windows 95 and then Windows 98 and then Vista and all of these other sort of you know um, upgrades to their existing uh, operating systems and platforms. They used to have to spend a fortune on the marketing of that new release, and then they had to try and encourage people to upgrade their software, mm. and and they would get huge lumps of revenue coming in over these marketing campaigns. And then, as the marketing campaigns died down and everyone did their their upgrades, they would go into a period of lull where sales would then start Windle, to dip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember the news videos um, where you would see people walking into the computer shop and walking out with a box. Yes. Yep. Windows 95. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. Very true. But now these days, with cloud and uh, and the move to software as a service, these businesses are now just consistently uh, generating cash and consistently generating revenue, and and the revenue stream is so much less volatile these days, and in fact, it's so much more visible and so much more stable, and uh, and the business is much more sticky. That um, because once you get your subscription, it, you know most people are pretty pretty much content to continue to pay for that mm. subscription blindly, and so these businesses have realised that not only will they have this recurring revenue month in month out, year in year out, but once they become dependent on that software, they're able to actually raise prices as well um, above what they would have been um, when when they were doing these big launches. So yeah, the business models are better, and and the investors are, are now rewarding those companies with uh, more safety in their share prices as well. Now, interestingly enough, um, just taking a quick look at the S and P five hundred uh, at the moment, 
Uh, and why we're seeing we've got this really great economic backdrop, albeit we've got some uncertainties around what might take place with uh, with the with the COVID situation still. Um, there was a study that came out again this week where the S and P five hundred uh, now has eighty percent of its stocks above its two hundred day moving average. Now, generally, when the stock market is in an uptrend, you have a lot of stocks sitting above the long term trend of the market. When the stock market is in a downtrend, you have a lot of stocks that sit underneath the long-term trend of a market. In this case, we've we've currently just just this week we've now got 80% of S&P 500 companies sitting above their 200-day moving average, indicating that we're now in a in a, a broad uptrend. But this has happened uh, on the back of um, the stock market having uh, uh, just less than 10% of stocks above their 200-day moving average in the same year. So what that says is that obviously we had a hell of a lot of stocks get whacked during the COVID-19 crash in March and April, but now they've all recovered to now have a hell of a lot of stocks now sitting above and back in an uptrend again. And to have that wild swing occur in in, a, in the same 12-month uh, period is very, very rare. In fact, over the last 30 years, it's only happened three times previously. Now, when it's happened uh, over a three-month, six-month, and 12-month period of time, uh, we've seen positive returns in the S&P 500 every single time uh, for an average gain of 6.1% uh, over three months, 12.1% over six months, and 14.1% over the next uh, uh, 12, uh, 12 months. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you're looking at this environment, you, you would have to say that now is not the time to get too pessimistic. The biggest risk that I'm seeing, though, at this point in time with the market is really just around what sorts of measures that Joe Biden and his team push through in order to change their tact with how they're managing the COVID situation. Now, I don't believe it's in anyone's best interest to um, to shut down the US economy and go into hard lockdowns. I just don't think that this, that strategy, and I think there's a recognition more broadly that the strategy that we used here in Victoria is not likely to be the strategy that is going to work as well in the United States or in Europe or in the UK. Are you talking um, size it, of population that would cause that well, not to be Well, well I'm, I'm, I'm thinking not so much size of population. I'm, I'm more thinking the size of the, of the problem yeah. over there relative to the size of the problem yeah. that it was here. I mean, at the worst of it, at the peak of it here in Victoria, we had 700-odd mm. uh, daily cases being di diagnosed, and it was only there for a very short space of time. You know, in Europe and the United States and the UK, they're many, many, many times worse on a daily uh, diagnosis basis than what we were. And yeah. to, to try and bring the levels down to you know, practically zero where we are here in Victoria, you know, would send those economies into, you know, decades of uh, just despair. It's just not going to work. But, and interestingly enough, when, when we're having a look at, you know, the death rates versus COVID cases that are being released, in most of the Western world, so Europe, UK, and, and the United States, the death rates relative to the new cases being reported is is, is dropping significantly. Um, uh, so we're becoming smarter with how we're treating this uh, with how we're treating this uh, virus. Uh, we're, we're developing more effective methods to to treat it. Um, but I think really what the situation is is that lockdowns or more restrictions are potentially on the cards in the United States more broadly. Uh, but once again, I think the problem that Biden's going to face, and, and perhaps let's not get too pessimistic about what Biden might bring in here, is that ultimately the states in the United States have the control around what what sorts of measures are taken to, to um, you know, pr prevent the further spread. And it's probably been, in some respects, the same challenge that Trump, albeit Trump had taken a different view to Biden in regards to what should should be done, um, I think Biden's going to find it quite difficult to push through anything broad-based across the American economy because the states, like here in Australia, have a lot of control around what goes on and what sort of regulations are implemented. Mm. So while there are some risks, uh, generally speaking, we're in an environment that is actually quite conducive for very good stock price performance in the United States, but also here in Australia. Um, let's not forget the fact that interest rates here in Australia are very, very low. We're now on top of the virus, so we can start to look for a domestic economy recovery. Uh, yes, we're still going to have restrictions around travel internationally, but um, our domestic demand should start to recover. And 
and uh, with low interest rates, lots of stimulus, um, reasonably attractive valuations and a cyclical recovery uh, ongoing, um, you know, I, I think that all bodes well, at least for the next six to 12 months uh, in the stock market. Good to hear some positivity, Joel. That's a good way to start the day. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to throw to a quick break and we're going to come back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. And welcome back. Now, Brett, we're going to throw over to you. But before I do, you're going to take a bit of a holiday this weekend. Where are you going? Tell us so that we can be uh, a little bit envious. Finally getting beyond not only the 5K limit, but even the Ring of Steel now. So well, finally yeah. getting to see some scenery that's different to, to just the CBD and, and my local suburb, which will be nice. Uh, yeah. Getting down to Cape Shank, down Love on the area. edge of the Mornington Peninsula there. So it should yeah. be beautiful. Is the weather meant to be good this weekend? I think it's going to be hot on Sunday, uh, a bit overcast, so not not great, not perfect weather, but hey, I'll take whatever I can get. Just get me it's out of here. It's pretty good for Melbourne, though. If you can get a day where it's a little bit hot um, and, and not raining, it's all right. So. Well, typically, if, if if the last month's anything to go by, if it's going to be hot one day, it'll be freezing the next. That's exactly right. We just I'll like to keep to. things interesting in Victoria. Yeah. Huh? Better, better make sure I pack for both seasons. I've got to say, I had a friend that came over last night um, and she was telling me that uh, a couple of her friends are heading down to the coast for Christmas and it has shot the price of accommodation up, I think two weeks worth of accommodation um, for a very kind of mediocre house was $20,000. Wow, 10000 a week. <laughs> yeah, 20, I think it was 20000 for the two weeks, but two I thought, weeks. gee, that's pretty pretty steep. So it just shows that people are so desperate to, to get out over that Christmas period that they'd uh, pretty much pay anything. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if uh, that's one part of, of what I was about to talk in, um, in regard to that I hadn't factored in was was the holiday rentals and the sort of price increases there. Most of what I was going to touch on was purely just uh, where population looks like it's heading in regional areas uh, and what's happening with property markets in a lot of those areas. Yeah. Um, so realestate.com, so REA, the company behind them, have released a regional Australia report. Um, this is their November 2020 version. Uh, and it's got a, a massive, really interesting insights about what's happening in regional towns uh, all around Australia mm -hmm. and regional towns and regional areas. Uh, and uh, obviously they've, they've preempted a lot of what the report says by what they believe the trends are due to. Uh, and, and it's pretty obvious from our perspective that what's happened with COVID is a lot of people are starting to see that they can work remotely. So there's more interest for people to say, well, I don't have to be stuck to the CBD if I can do my job from anywhere. Why don't I pick a lifestyle or, or an affordability of a property that I'd love to live in that doesn't have to be so close to the CBD? Uh, the other part of it is is a few industries that uh, that aren't so dependent um, upon, or so much dependent upon, but are a bit more immune to the COVID uh, restrictions, such as mining. So there's been a little bit more population growth in a few mining areas purely because of the jobs. Uh, but the, the parts in regards to data that I, I thought were interesting to touch on, so they've, they've given a little bit of insight as to where they see population growth, but they're, they're sort of basing it on the data they get out of their realestate.com.au website in terms of interest levels and, and transactions they're seeing. So it's not the approved uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics data. We won't have that for a while but they're just forecasting the, the population growth based on the amount of interest in property and properties being sold in regional areas being an indicator. Uh, they've also given a bit of a trend to show how regional areas had grown pre-COVID uh, and which ones have had uh, more of a spike since COVID. And the interesting thing that they pointed out here was that pre-COVID, most of the regional areas that performed well were, were still within a reasonable commute to a CBD. So if you think about Melbourne, it, it might be 
areas where you can, like your Bendigo's and Ballarat's, where you can get on the train and still potentially work in the city. Yeah. Uh, whereas since COVID, they're actually finding a few areas that aren't necessarily linked to any major CBD that are having a fair bit of growth. What, what kind of areas are they, Brett? Well, the one that they've highlighted that seems to have had the, the most significant growth is a suburb called Bangalore or Bangalore in um, in the Byron Bay hinterland. Yes, Bangalore. it's a beautiful area. We were yeah, there. Sounds like you know before, it. Yeah, the lockdown um, happened, and 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 to be honest, it both Joel and I commented about how how gorgeous that is. So, Bangalore is a fabulous part of the world. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Really There's no surprise then that it's village, so, yeah. doing this. Well, it's Bangalore is is actually the first regional suburb to ever appear in the top 10 suburbs nationally for um, interest per listing in terms yeah. of the amount of people looking at each property for sale. Wow. wow. I can yeah. honestly say I can see the appeal. So, I mean, you're not far from the beach and you've also got that sort of very almost rural kind of um, country lifestyle, so makes sense when you put it in perspective doesn't it mm. but again it's it's quite isolated from any major cbd or business hub yeah yeah uh, but there this is amazing currently properties on average in that area are getting over eleven thousand views on realestate.com oh mm -hmm. that's incredible it is incredible but and it's it has also linked with price growth so i've just got to scroll through to find where i had this bit so have a listen to this in September in the year 2000, uh, prop, the median price of a property in Bangalore was $76,000. When was this? That was September 2000, so 20 2000. years ago. My goodness. Right. As of today, the median price, $1,050,000. Wow. Oh, jeez. So in percentage terms, that is 1,281%. Or just a really, really good investment if you got in there early. <laughs> Absolutely. So in the um, in the chart they've put together, they've picked the best three suburbs of, of every or best three regional suburbs of every state uh, and, and shown how they've performed from September 2000 through to September 2020. That one was streets ahead by, by an absolute mile, but pretty much all of the others are at least 400% uh, increases in value over that 20 years. Yeah. Wow. So what's, what's Victoria's one? What are the top three in Victoria? Yeah. So in Victoria, Barwon Heads is the one that's shown the most growth in that time. In fact, it's it's not a very dissimilar story from uh, from what we spoke about with Bangalore in terms of pricing. Back mm. in two thousand, uh, the median price of a property in in Barwon Heads was one hundred and forty five thousand. As of today, a million and fifty thousand. My goodness. Wow. There you go. Uh, and then the other two areas in Victoria that have, have had the most growth over that time, Indented Head mm -hmm. and Kyneton. So Indented oh, Head, another Bayside area but, or Beachside yeah. area. Kyneton, a little bit more country, um, mm. but has a, has a lot going for it, Kyneton. It's still pretty close. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, has has a lot of nice dining and I think it has quite a, a number of award-winning restaurants. Yeah, it's lovely. And accommodation, so it's understandable. Um but pretty much, if, if we look across the board, I mean, there's too many suburbs. If I go through every one for every state, we'll be here all day. Mm. Uh, but pretty much all of them have had, you know, in 2000, in the year 2000, they were all sort of between 50 and 200,000. And now they're all sort of, uh, well, the lowest is 330,000. But that was Invermain, Tasmania, that had a base of 60,000. But, yeah, they've all grown... Yeah, I think the lowest is around 250% up to that 1,280%. Yeah. Brett, do they tend to, do these sort of trends tend to last with these areas where, you know, once once it's gone up in value, it continues to, to stay on that sort of high? Or do you, do you sort of see it drop off and people find the next place to, to sort of invest? Well, if you look at Bangalore, the pricing you're seeing there, it's starting to rival the likes of Sydney property prices, really. Yeah. It's, it's getting that high. And to try and answer that question, Steph, well, this price growth has been happening for 20 years. So mm -hmm. at what point do we say it's 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 it start, stopped or dropping off? I mean, I guess we have yeah, to keep watching. Yeah, yeah of uh, course. But yeah. I guess the problem with a lot of these places is eventually they get so populated that people, you know, it loses that original appeal. The yeah. property prices still stay at a high level, but the amount of demand relative to other areas might drop. Mm. 
I think what also happens is people move from the capital city out to that uh, regional area, uh, and so you could describe it as the the Sydney money is moving to Bangalore. Um, and similar thing with uh, with places like Kyneton, you've got the Melbourne money moving into that area. Um, and, and at some point, just the, the economics shift because it's not that much more affordable. Um, and it comes down to, um, well, how nice is that area relative to the price and, and, and all the other things that go with it. I just wonder, though, in a, in a situation like COVID, do people make these kind of moves because they think it's such a wonderful idea? And then a few years down the track, they go, well, that was great. <laughs> but uh, it didn't quite meet my lifestyle going forward. I just, it's just going to be interesting to see whether it's a rush of blood or, um, you know, if people really do use those houses and, and continue along with that and, you know, keep keep that kind of a trend going. Uh, Steph, I think the biggest unknown in, in this, in trying to evaluate that, is we've never had the infrastructure around the internet to exist yep. like this before. And given pretty much everyone does a lot of their business using technology and, and the internet allows for obviously online meetings and sending of communication and documents, it's totally different to any other time like this before where yep. it might be more sustainable than we've ever seen. For sure, for sure. I, I just think, I mean, my other concern is that there's a lot of people with kids in school and that, that you know, they've got to return to that normal lifestyle. So for so many people that have had a holiday house, um, you know, I've spoken to people that said it would be such a great idea to go and purchase, but then the reality strikes that they've they've also got commitments back in Melbourne, particularly with the kids. Yeah, that's that's going to be the biggest. And and depending on what sort of network of a, a family or a group might need, like if if they've got a young family, they might think, oh, let's move regionally. But then they realise, hang on, we still need our grand, you know, the grandparents or the family yeah. around to support us, or we want that's to be close right. by to be able to get to them. Yeah. It's going to be a bit of a wait and see. Yeah, it will. But anyone's guess. But I think, as you said, though, with that technology and, um, you know, certainly for a lot of businesses now, they're saying we don't need you in the office all the time. You know, you can you can work two or three days from home or come in as, as you require. And that, that gives people a bit more flex to be able to take off and, and spend, you know, a week or, you know, quite a long weekend um, in these types of places if they're not that far away from, from their, uh, you know, current address. Absolutely. So there's something else going here as well, um, because in in years gone by, um, you'd work your career in the CBD, and then when you've made your success, then you take your money and you buy a regional property in a holiday house, and so you've got people in their sort of typically fifties and sixties who buy their their holiday homes or or move away from the CBD in retirement. Yeah. Um, but the the shift that I think might be happening is. People aren't waiting for their 50s and 60s to do that anymore. You've you've got uh, a, a new generation of Gen Ys um, who are the the early Gen Ys are uh, approaching the age of 40, so they've got good incomes and and careers behind them, um, uh, and uh, and other Gen Ys are as young as 30 or or late 20s, so don't have families yet, and they've got a different set of values, uh, yeah. and, and they're not necessarily signing up for that life where they work in the CBD for their whole career. They're going to these regional places early and yeah. they might not even have started a family yet, um, but they'll, um, they'll, they'll set up their life to be in this regional centre. Uh, and I think there's um, a greater proportion of the population now that's willing to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I did actually have um, another chat with my friend last night too and she said that she had a um, girlfriend of hers that she caught up with um, at, at the local school where she was dropping her child off yesterday and, and the um, other parent was dressed in corporate attire and she said, oh, you look gorgeous, you've, you know, you've been out to work today and the mum said to her, I'm absolutely exhausted and I have forgotten what that kind of a commute takes out of you on a daily basis and, and how tiring that is because you tend to have sort of forgotten that um, you know, that's that's a big part, that rushing around. It's going to be very, very hard for everyone to come back and get their lifestyle sorted um, and, and not have that flex with the hours. So I think it's going to be a very interesting one to see very exhausted people uh, when uh, it returns to some kind of normality. Yeah, traffic's certainly one thing I haven't missed. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I ever will. No. Anything further that you can tell us, Brett? Look, I... I guess the only other thing that, uh, from a data perspective, uh, prior to COVID, or if we look at 
the data here that says where the increases in population were over the last five years in what they call regional SA4. Now, SA4 is like the um, statistical area outside of a major metropolitan area. The biggest move over the last five years was actually Geelong that had a 14% increase over that five years in, in um, population growth. So this isn't about property prices, purely population. Uh, the thing I noted is prior to COVID, so this, this particular table of data was all up until 2019, the top 10 of these were pretty much all coastal areas. So it yeah. shows that we've really got an affinity for, for bayside or beachside living. So Geelong, the Gold Coast, uh, Sunshine Coast, Mandurah in New South Wales, uh, the Hunter Valley, places like that seem to feature prominently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I, I think is just my personal perspective is I think we're really in a state of flux over the next year or two in terms of both commercial property and residential property. We're, we're still yet to see what's going to happen with commercial space and, and the CBDs in terms of how people are going to, going to function with their businesses, whether they're going to have full staff operating, are they all going to be doing a combination of remote working and office working, yeah. uh, and then whether that continues to show more and more people wanting and willing to live remotely and, and further out from CBDs. Mm -hmm. I did get an email myself from my uh, my workplace this morning saying that um, it's looking as though that we're going to be back in the office earlier than expected. Obviously, they still haven't given a date, but it's showing things are starting to move. So I think it is going to be interesting how much um, they expect their staff to, to sort of be in the office or whether it's going to, to change this world going forward. Do you think that... Uh, commercial real estate is going to take the hits that everyone's predicting, Brett, or what's your, your take on the CBD? The part that I think is hurting the commercial property, and, and especially in the CBD, and I know Melbourne in particular here, it's not solely dependent upon um, the current businesses that are deciding whether they want to continue in the CBD or, or downsize their office space. It's actually going to be hit just as hard by the amount of new stock coming on the market. There is a whole lot of office space due to hit the market in, in 2021 and 2022 uh, that was probably going to, to create a lot of pressure on, on pricing anyway, just given the, the supply was probably going to be a bit too much. So if we add that to the uncertainty and the time it might take for, for the CBD to get back to where it was, I think it can only cause downward pressure. And, and actually, Joel, you've got first-hand experience in terms of the incentives you've seen. Yeah, well, well, we were starting to look for some additional office space uh, right around the time that uh, COVID was just starting to become something. And at that stage, we were generally in commercial, uh, certainly in office um, uh, rentals, you generally would find that the landlords, in order to entice a new commercial tenant on a longer term lease, they would provide some form of uh, incentive, be that a cash payment, a contribution towards um, the fit out of the of the premises or a, a rental discount for a period of time, and those incentives pre-COVID were at that point in time the the uh, vacancy rate in Melbourne was around about three three and a half percent, which was a very very low level of vacancy in historical standards. And the discounts or the incentives that were being offered were generally not much more than about ten percent uh, pre-COVID. Fast forward to today. And uh, we're now uh, starting that look again for that office space that we didn't get uh, six or seven months ago. And the incentives are now in the vicinity of about 30%. Now, to put that into perspective, those, those discounts are applied across the full term of the lease. So if you're taking out a five-year lease and your rent is at, you know, $500 a square metre, the effective rent uh, is uh, $350 a square metre or, um, you know, is, is that about right? Is that 30%? Yeah, that's <laughs> close enough. <laughs> close enough, yeah. Um, close enough for a finance podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds about right. That's uh, that's three, yeah, that would be 70%. Mm -hmm. at three, so your effective rent is 350 or, yeah, a, a, essentially a 30% discount. Mm. So rents on an effective basis have dropped at least 20% uh, in the last seven months. Yeah. So and given the parts to be looking. <laughs> and given most commercial space sells on a yield basis, not necessarily a you know a, a compar comparable sale type analysis, that means all the yields are going to be compressed. And, and I should add to that as well, it actually gets worse than that because there's all sorts of other trickery that's going on in order to, to protect the valuations for these commercial properties. For instance, uh, a number of the landlords that we've been speaking to have been open to um, early access. 
So, you know, dress it up how you want, but essentially yeah. that's another form of, of, of rent, rent-free yeah. as well. So, you know, a lot of the landlords that we've uh, we've been speaking to are open to us signing a lease today, getting access in January, but the rental lease not actually commencing until April or May. Yeah. And then you get the 30% uh, incentive on top of that. So, mm. yeah, it just shows you times, yeah. it just shows yeah. you how far commercial has swung in the last 7 or 8 months. But you know, do you think though that it was I mean, really CBDs are always expensive, but do you think we were such a hot market in the city that it was it was sort of a time for a bit of a reality check or Oh, uh, look. Um it was expected, and a lot of the leasing agents that I was speaking to were suggesting that, look, vacancy rates were probably going to rise from about 3.5% to about 7%, six and to 7% over the next couple of years with the new stock coming on. Mm. But given that we've now got, you know, a number of these leases will be coming to their end over the next two to three years. Yeah. Uh, and, and businesses, just like mine, um, a good proportion of those will probably only operate at around about 70% capacity. So, yeah. so for instance, for every 10 staff that they've got, they're probably only going to end up having seats for seven of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, and I'm sure we're not the only ones who are thinking like this. I'm, I'm sure that most businesses who have got uh, large tenancies in the CBD, which are very expensive, are probably thinking the same. Yeah. I just wonder, though, if we do tend to, to head more towards um, using commercial offices as very much like a hub style and that you maybe will attract some kind of smaller businesses that can either share offices because I can't see that, you know, I know it's going to hit the CBD hard, but I can't see it being a problem forever. I just think that we'll just adapt and find new ways to actually to use the space. What, what, it won't be a problem forever because you're going to naturally have the uh, reintroduction of um of immigration, you're going to have new yeah. businesses starting up. We're going to go through the cycle, mm. but certainly what we're looking at is a period of pain. Yeah. I don't think I don't think there's a way in which you can avoid that over the next two or three years. Mm. And, and and landlords that own large commercial office spaces are going to find it difficult. Yeah, and it will have a flow-on effect into the CBD economy. It cannot because if you've got vacancies rising. Um, then that will suppress the need for new construction activity, um, mm, mm. like what we have seen in, in recent times, and that will flow on into the economy. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that, that econ- economists are looking at and saying, well, you know, the unemployment rate is probably not going to get back down to 5% for, for quite some time. Yeah. You know, we're going to be stuck yeah. probably persistently somewhere around that 7 8 percent range and at this point in time Victoria has an effective unemployment rate of around 14 percent mm-hmm. so um, well, we have haven't to... even touched on the other part of commercial real estate which is the retail uh, yeah. even being in the office in the last week Joe I've noticed when I've when I've gone out for lunch that there's a whole host of restaurants and cafes that are just non-existent at the moment yeah um, and even speaking with a, a leasing agent this week that does a lot of um, retail leasing He's noticed that uh, a lot of the hotel and, and restaurant hospitality type businesses that were in the CBD uh, have seen it as too risky a proposition in the near term that they're looking at relocating suburban where they're not relying on the uh, the office and workers during the week and they can just have the you know the permanent people living nearby. Mm. Wow, yeah, it's a cycle, right? You've got restaurants that are paying a certain amount of rent right now, and that's the cost of doing business. But if, uh, if rents are going to fall, well, then you're reducing the cost of doing business for a restaurant, which means that new restaurants are going to be attracted to come in. So yeah. it, it kind of means existing restaurants get the arse because they're in these old leases at, at the high rents. Uh, and if they can't renegotiate on that, well, then they'll have to move premises or shut down business. Um, but then your new restaurant signing a lease today is going to be doing it at uh, 30% less rents. And, Louis, the other thing that I noticed uh, during the GFC, because I lived in the city coming out of the GFC, um, was that there were a number of restaurants that downscaled. So what I mean by that is they were, there were lots of high-end high restaurants yeah. that became much more medium-end or you know, middle-of-the-road type mm. restaurants and much more affordable. Yeah, I think we did have a business owner that said to us he, he owned um, a very high-end restaurant and he just said that the sort of long business lunch is kind of dead that kind of white tablecloth you know sit there for hours and 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 have that kind of style he they they changed more to not not a pub style but i guess that's a gastro uh, pub um casual dining yeah Um, Yeah. because they just said that that's what people wanted they didn't want um 
these really really expensive lunches that um that, that used to be there it's sort of a cheaper version of that um well, sort of well and it was a cycle right so through sort of 2010 11 12 mm. um, that's when we started to see a lot of these conversions but in the last two or three years <laughs> as as things were doing quite well um you know a lot of those Returns. fancy restaurants yeah. started to return yeah yeah as you ah. say it's a cycle isn't it all right, guys, well, we're going to have to um, call that one there, but um, we're going to take a break and we'll come back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. All right, now welcome back. Now, Louis, you're going to be talking to us today about new rules for underperforming super funds, which is a topic you touched on in the past. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, correct. Uh, it was an announcement in the uh, federal budget, um, and uh, and when I cast my mind back to that, I, I think, well, federal budget, May, um, that, that feels really recent. What's happening with my perspective of time? But, of course, <laughs> this year the federal budget was delayed until the start of October, so um, so I wasn't going crazy. Uh, it was only uh, uh, five or six weeks ago. Um, so in that federal budget, uh, they made some announcements uh, around uh, the default super funds called My Super Products. Uh, and the continuing issue that the government has and, and Treasury measures this and the productivity makes recommendations on it uh, is the impact of uh, super funds on people's re retirement balances. And in particular, you've got uh, what they see as underperforming super funds. Uh, and a component of that and a bugbear for the Productivity Commission is um, what they see as high fees on superannuation accounts. Uh, and of course, we've debated in the in the past um, the merits of a of an investment strategy that might have higher costs, but being able to deliver higher returns. Uh, but for the most part, when you've got these large superannuation funds on large scale, they're all dependent on a certain economy of scale, uh, and uh, and they should all be striving for a a lower cost service. So the announcement from the, the federal budget was that super funds would be uh, undergoing an annual performance test uh, and that there would be an online comparison tool uh, created and hosted by the regulator. Um, and just to be confusing, um, <laughs> the, a, a super fund which is uh, uh, your super fund, let's say with an industry fund or a retail fund, if it's a default super fund, it's called a My Super product, mm -hmm. and then this online uh, comparison tool is called Your Super. <laughs> so we've got My Super, we've got Your Super, and I just think they could have been a little bit more creative with some. Of them. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, so uh, just in the in the weeks since, there's been a bit of chatter uh, to to look at it in a bit more detail and performance is ideally measured over years. That's the period of time to get a really good understanding of whether your super fund or your investment manager or fund manager is actually performing well over the long term. Uh, and they reckon a period of time less than eight years is not long enough to, uh, to actually measure that performance. So this annual performance test that they're talking about is benchmarking super funds on how they've returned over an eight-year period of time. So I wonder about the merits of that. And my gut feeling is that eight years is probably too long mm. a period of time. Um, if, if you don't know, over probably uh, oh, my oh. gut feel would be more five years. Yeah, yeah. That being said, 
in in recent times, we haven't seen all types of market conditions over a five-year period of time because we've been in this very long uh, bull market um, for oh, how long has it been now, Joel? 11 years? Uh, 11 years, yeah, 2009, March 2009. Whereas, uh, whereas prior to that, you, you could easily say that over a five-year period of time, you've got most uh, of the different types of market conditions and you can see how a fund manager has performed through multiple different sets of conditions. So, uh, look, what they're going to do, they're going to take this uh, performance over an eight-year period of time and they're going to uh, create a benchmark for what they think the performance should have been on average. And they're going to say, well, if a super fund has, uh, has done worse than the benchmark by more than half a percent per annum, then you're failing that annual performance test. So if you fail that eight-year return performance test, uh, the first time you fail it, uh, there's going to be a warning letter go out to all of the members of that super fund wow. that say, um, hey, you're in an underperforming super fund, just so wow. you know. And then if that super fund fails twice in a row, then that super fund will actually be prevented from accepting new members. Wow. Okay. When you say it fails twice in a row, is it two yep. eight-year periods, though, or how do they...? So it's an annual performance annual. which looks okay. back at the last eight years. Right. Okay. So okay. The, the, the first one will be... Um, uh, After the eight? Start of July 2021, yep. looking at the last eight years, yep. and then July 2022, we'll look at the eight years before that. Okay. Uh, and that's when we might actually see the, the first super funds... Uh, failing on that measure. Mm. I like it. Um, I, do, I like it as well. I think it's really good. And the, the biggest thing to, uh, to to drive it is for people to actually be engaged with their super funds. Um, the what, what the Productivity Commission knows more than anything else is that disengaged uh, superannuation fund members get poorer performance than engaged members. So yep. if you're a listener to this podcast and you've never really done anything with your superannuation accounts, yeah. um, get engaged. Yeah. Just have a have a look, make a decision, make it more likely that you're going to get a better superannuation outcome. Yeah, but it will also force force these super funds to, to be a bit better with what they're doing, won't it? I mean, that's really putting the, the heat on to, to, you know, better their performance and make sure that they're actually doing the right thing. And you know, that's I think, the thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Better There's regulation of it. Not been any consequence for mm. poor performance because there is such a large proportion of the community that is disengaged. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the chatter, though, is about what are the potential unintended consequences. Mm. Um, one of the sets of feedback is if a letter goes out to all members, how many people actually open the letters from their super funds and read the contents of that letter? Um, I don't know about you guys, but... Um, a lot of the letters from super funds, there's the one statement of a year which actually shows my balance and, and the returns. Yeah. Um, but then there's other letters throughout the year about changes to trust deeds and the terms of this and yeah. your fee structure has changed by 0.02 of a percent. And we're just I get that, but yeah. I, I just think from a media perspective, if these um, super funds are performing badly, they're going to get a wrap over the knuckle in the media. Mm -hmm. And that means that more people are going to be aware of an underperforming super fund and lots more people will go, well, I'm not going to keep it in there. I mean, I just think it's going to open open other people's eyes to it and they will find there'll be consequences to it. Louis, the yep. uh, one thing that comes to immediately strikes my mind as an entrepreneurial financial advisor who has a strong track record, um, <laughs> it, would be toot, toot. it would be incumbent <laughs> upon me to make those investors and members aware of just how poor their super fund is. <laughs> um, now, I know that there's going to be difficulties in terms of being able to um, get access directly to who those members might be, but certainly... Uh, um, you know, I would be inclined to, to try and make those members aware for my own uh, business's interest. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Louis, is the letter coming directly from the super fund to tell you that they've underperformed or how does it, where does it come from? I think it has to come from the super funds. 
Okay. Because it, it'll be the... Well, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. Because that'd be kind of embarrassing. Guys, we've underperformed for the last eight years. Here's a letter. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the one hand, I would imagine it has to come from the super funds as they're obligated to, but then I wonder how that super fund could spin it. Yeah. Uh, Very well uh, if you work in PR, Louis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the ATO um, would have the data of who are the members uh, of that super fund. So potentially it could be the ATO who writes right. to all the members. Because uh, I think that would give you more of a shock, wouldn't it? If it came from the ATO, you'd go, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, correct, correct. So the other, uh, there's a couple of other things that people are talking about as maybe not the best outcomes. Um, if you're a super fund and you've got seven years of bad performance, what investment decisions are you going to make in that eighth year knowing that if you don't have investments that perform really well, um, what's your what's your choices to actually try and boost your returns? Mm. And the concern um, is that super funds will be encouraged or even almost forced to make risky investment decisions. Yeah. yeah. Which might ultimately result in even worse outcomes. This sounds a bit like uh, Australian rules football teams. <laughs> well, it does until you get to my next idea, which uh, which probably isn't going to be the case unless it's really drastic. I don't think it is, and that is consolidation. Ooh. If you're a super fund with seven years of of bad performance, or even eight years of bad performance, or even you get to the the, the ninth year of bad performance and you're forced to stop accepting new members. Well, then maybe as a super fund, you say, well, our business model kind of is um, is shot in the foot because we can't attract new members and we're bleeding old members because we've been underperforming. Let's consolidate our fund into someone else's better performing super fund. Maybe that's the best thing to do. But then the costs for consolidating are so high, then again, you've got a negative outcome for the people in that fund. They've already had eight or nine years of poor performance. Yeah. And now they're going to get hit with the costs of um, merging with uh, with another super fund. So yeah, I, I wonder about the, um, the 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 potential risks. I I think those potential side effects are not uh, not so adverse that it's not overall a good idea. Um, so so that's my opinion. Little known fact: um, Do you guys know? Uh, what the level of fees and charges are across the superannuation industry in general? No, no. I don't. $30 billion a year wow. is what's charged across the superannuation industry. Now, the GDP of Australia is $2 trillion. Uh, so $30 billion is 1.5% of our country's GDP. Wow. Made up yeah. by super funds. Uh, and the fees that they pay in administration fees and fund manager fees. Uh, and, and I was just blown away by that. Yeah, it's huge. Until my wife says, well, she uh, she watched an episode of The Gruen Transfer and Bunnings's annual turnover is $15 billion. <laughs> so that's pretty significant as well. Yes. Is that after the COVID crisis when everyone just went to Bunnings because they had nothing else to do? <laughs> that's right. So on the one hand, there's a lot of fees going to the superannuation industry, but mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it's it's only the equivalent of two Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. So I mean, it, I mean, two frames of mind about the whole thing because I I see why they'd want to do something like that, but I also see how that could be complicated. So what what is the plan with that though? If that's going to kick in, when when does this happen? Is it going to be from next July? Uh, yes, from next July is when they're talking about it happening. Right. Um, now, what's uh, what's also interesting is uh, some people have already put together some lists of uh, of which super funds are actually going to be impacted by this. Tell the listeners, Louis. So, uh, I've already got the name of a bunch of super funds for you, so that you can see. Uh, so an article has, uh, has has found that based on current data, there's potentially 25 super funds that would get this warning letter to their members. Uh, so let's have a, a shout out for some of these funds. <laughs> uh, um, uh, 
mine superannuation fund from the Auscoal superannuation plan. Yay. As super. Um, Asgard employee member super, uh, my super. Uh, BT super, my super. <laughs> the Westpac group plan, my super. Mm. Uh, B-U-S-S Queensland, uh, which is known as uh, Bus Q, Building <laughs> Superannuation Scheme in Queensland. Uh, Christian Super, Commonwealth Bank Group Super, uh, LESF My Super, the Energy Industries Superannuation Plan, AMG Super, the IAG and NRMA Superannuation Plan, which is a huge plan for... Um, Insurance company employees. Yeah. Uh, Maritime Super. Uh, here's one for you. The AFL Players Association and AFL Industry, My Super. Yeah. So shout out to anyone uh, in the AFL industry who's uh, who's suffering through this. Uh, Rest Superannuation Fund. Wow, that's a massive a one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the number of members that they have is huge. Mm. Mm. Uh, TWU Super, uh, Toyota Super, uh, and the Victorian Independent Schools Superannuation Fund. Yeah. Name there and shame go. list. Pretty there scary stuff. Yep. Yep. So there what you go. What can people do if they don't want to stay in that kind of a super fund? Uh, do something about it. Yeah, they contact you. <laughs> or, or maybe even contact an organisation that can... Uh, look at different superannuation options to get you into a higher performing fund. Mm. Um, if you look, if you do a Google search for the top 10 performing super funds in Australia, it's very easy to find those super funds uh, with the higher performance from their default options. However, those default options that are published as the top 10 best performing super funds in Australia are not actually the top performing super funds and investments in Australia. No. Uh, what you're finding is the top default options, which is still for people who have not really engaged with their super funds. Yep. That's just people who are lucky enough. Australian super has been at the top of that list for a long time. So lucky for people who are not engaged that have just been put with Australian super because someone else made the choice. But if mm. you make the choice, then you can find something even better than Australian Super. And as an example, <coughs> our investment strategies uh, have outperformed Australian Super by a very wide margin. Mm. So again, those people who engage with their Super and make an active choice uh, can get a better outcome than any of Australia's so-called top 10 performing Super funds. Okay. That's why I think, Louis, we, we might need to establish the top 10 SMSF performances. <laughs> no, that might be better, Brett. Good one. Absolutely. All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there because we're well over time today and we'll throw to our last segment for the day, which is You Can't Be Serious. I'm going to put you on the spot. Joel, let's go with you. Well, um, You Can't Be Serious, Collingwood. Um, <laughs> we have... <laughs> We have butchered seven, uh, six of the last seven uh, trade and draft picks um, that we've had. Let's go back here. Dismal performance. 2013, we picked Matthew Scharenberg at number six and Matthew uh, Nathan Freeman at number ten. Bow, bow. <laughs> um, the only ones that we, the only year that we actually did a reasonable job was uh, 2014, where we picked up Jordan Degoe. Darcy Moore and Braden Maynard. Uh, 2015, we traded our first round pick for Adam Trelaw. 2016, traded our first round pick for Adam Trelaw. Uh, 2017, we picked up Jaden Stevenson. 2018, we traded our first round pick for Dane Beams. 2019, traded our first round pick for Dane Beams. And none of them are at Collingwood today. And I'm not buying what they're selling at the moment. To say that they want it back in the draft is utter crap. We've got a worse draft hand than we had, and we got rid of those three players. Yeah. Bitter and twisted Collingwood supporters, aren't they? Oh, not happy today. Well, 
You can't be serious. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> On that note, throwing it over Louie, what have you got for us? Oh, geez. Uh, nothing football related. I'm, uh, I'm pretty contented. Uh, West Coast not looking to be too active and just a couple of minor trades. Uh, we're, we're heading for the draft. <laughs> uh, although not huge amount because last season we, uh, we paid out big for Tim Kelly. But he went pretty well. Thank you very much. Uh, my I can't be serious is that um, in today's modern world, when you travel, uh, there's places that you are going where the, the country is asking for evidence of a recent COVID test, which means there is now a black market for <laughs> negative COVID tests. Oh, no. wow. The market for everything. <laughs> yeah. People in France have been arrested uh, trying to offer uh, commuters a... Um, uh, a, a copy or, or a fraudulent COVID test uh, for about $360. You can get a negative COVID test readout with your name on it. Um, but this kind of activity has been picked up not only in France, but also countries of South America, uh, places like Pakistan uh, and, uh, and various countries around Europe as well. Love wow. It. <laughs> it's a black market. I love it. I love it. Uh, Brett, lead us home. What have you got for us? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the ways you can stick the boot in. So Louis knows one good way, which is just to drape his West Coast scarf for six months after the, the 2018 grand file. And obviously all the messages I'm getting from my mates about what's going on at Collingwood, their ways to kick to stick the boot in. Um, but a gentleman named Brian Connolly in the US um, bought a very unique asset quite a number of years ago that he's using it to do just that at the moment. He bought the domain name loser.com. <laughs> currently being used to redirect to Donald Trump's Wikipedia page. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's epic. <laughs> oh, there you go. Absolutely epic. All right, guys. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but have a fabulous weekend. Um, and just a reminder, it's only 42 days until Christmas, just uh, putting it out there. So, uh, Let's hope there are only 42 donut days. 42 yeah. donut days, yeah. yeah. But uh, have a fabulous weekend, particularly Brett. Enjoy your time away and uh, look forward to hearing what it's like uh, to, to go somewhere and, and stay somewhere as well. It'll be interesting. I bet. Have a good one, guys. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, Bye -bye. listeners.